Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? Fantastic, mates. How's things? Uh, very excited about this one. The conclusion of What the Bullfrog Knew, the origin story of Canterbury joining Super League. So we set it up nicely last week with uh, you know the history of the Bullfrog era. This week we're going to get into it all, how they signed, when they signed, the, the ugly fallout thereafter. But first, we've got just one piece of errata this week. Uh, now, I don't have the smoking gun on this. I, I, I'm not able to pinpoint the exact moment in time, but uh, there's enough documentary evidence to suggest that at some point by the early 90s, at the very latest, Bullfrog had switched back to the camels. <laughs> so the, the dalliance with Winfield didn't last, and uh, at his time of death, he was back on the camel filters. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Crazy feedback from part one. Thanks very much for all your emails and DMs and tweets and what have you. But I'm going to put an open call out there for anybody who has a family member or themselves or a friend that actually attended Bullfrog's Belmore office slash lair. I need to to get information on this office. We want the dimensions. We want confirmation on the number of steps. All that. Everything. You know, Kerry Pack had marauding lions on his wall. What did Bullfrog have on his wall? (laughs) Hopefully it was something complimentary. Uh, so, dog signing with Super League. So, the basic reason that they were one of the first teams involved is their ability to read the writing on the wall. So, from at least 1987, they'd started talking internally about the ramifications of a national competition for the 11 Sydney clubs. By 1991, there was an article where Peter Moore was cited as the only club executive to acknowledge the possibility of amalgamations. Quite a big step in that era. A massive step. And that foresight should be kept in mind when you think about later developments. So the dogs were hungry to stay ahead of the curve and were willing to consider all options. Although that's technically a cosmetic thing, with the Bulldogs, you can really see a sense that they were thinking it as the first step in something. As early as 1993, they were already looking at the possibility of playing out of Homebush when the Olympic Stadium opened. But we've mocked Sydney City Roosters and Sydney Tigers and all that sort of stuff, right? The Bulldogs were the first to do it, which allowed them to plant the flag as the Sydney team if, God forbid, all of them went down, you know? so Yeah, no, it's very true. So at this point, 1994, thinking about their future, all options were on the table. So Roy Masters in November 1994 reported that they'd opened talks with St. George with the possibility of amalgamating. Of course, at that stage, Super League developments were already underway. Uh, In that February meeting of all the clubs in 1995, Peter Moore actually spoke in favour of the need for amalgamations, referencing the the 1992 Bradley report that emphasised the need for less Sydney clubs. It seems outrageous to me that St George and Canterbury would consider merging, like two strong legendary teams with opposing rich histories. Like, I would have thought they'd be both trying to take over a minnow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It kind of maybe suggests where 
St. George were financially compared to the, where the dogs were. Well, I suppose financially, I was just considering they were in the grand final a year earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, <laughs> there it is. That's as it all, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I don't think for a second that the Bulldogs were entering those talks thinking it was going to be an equal partnership. Right. I think any merger they did embark upon would have been a takeover. And you can see that from the mixed messaging you got during this time. You know, I've said they were all options were on the table and they were considering amalgamations. But, you know, Peter Moore in June 1994 stated publicly that they weren't interested in amalgamations. And then after signing, the fear of amalgamation was actually used as the explanation as to why they went with Super League. So in May 1995, Punchy Nelson sent a letter to all Bulldogs members explaining that their ARL future would quite probably lead to amalgamation. Wow. So I'll I'll just read this excerpt from the letter sent out to members. Under an ARL rationalisation of 11 Sydney clubs, our club was faced with the certainty of compulsory amalgamation, an ultimatum that we must forsake our tradition, heritage and history. In place of the Sydney Bulldogs, we would have certainly been, say, Western Bulldogs, amalgamated with, say, West and Balmain, and never again to wear our beloved blue and white. And on it goes. Just a side note, when we posed the question in our mailbag episode about amalgamations that intrigued us, that's the one right there that I forgot to mention, but Wests and the Bulldogs... No, you did mention that. I did? Yeah. Okay, good. Because the idea of the Western Bulldogs, I think it could have worked so well. Hell and yeah. It could have given the league an all-embracing Western Suburbs team. Absolutely. Which I don't think the West Tigers has ever, not even have they achieved. They haven't really wholeheartedly tried to achieve that. They're trying to hang on to Balmain mm. this Leichhardt fantasy. That's the kind of merger that the Dogs would have been looking for because that's one that they could essentially take over let me ask you this what's more important to keep the name or the colors it's kind of the colors isn't it i don't know i think i think bulldogs is quite and that's the second name for god's sakes but i think the name's more important especially in the in the era of away strips and what have you no yeah you're definitely right because the tigers for example yeah half the reason that they have that balmain identity they're balmain in so many people's eyes even though they you know often play in a predominantly black strip yeah is because of the tigers so i think you're right there it's tough though so the the actual decision to sign with super league so i want to say here at the start that after some exhaustive research i still don't have anything definitive on who contacted who first or the exact date and this chapter has really exposed my naivety when we started this we said we were going to put out the definitive (laughs) account of the super league (laughs) war i now realize that that is so far beyond us because of so much that isn't on the public record yet what i hope now the new goalposts is that we can raise all the necessary questions but you should have come to me first i could have told you they all found out april 1 So this aspect of the war, Canterbury signing, is undoubtedly one of the most important components of Super League getting off the ground and is also easily the murkiest in terms of getting that origin story. The kind of thing where if you ask five people, you get five wildly different accounts. I don't know how this is possible, but it is. So I'm going to start with some established facts. Established fact number one, at some point in the third quarter of 1994, sometime between July and September, John Singleton uh, went to Canterbury Leagues Club for a meeting with Gary McIntyre. This meeting was ostensibly about the looming threat of the opening of Star City Casino and what that might mean for large pokey dens like Canterbury Leagues Club. Community clubs? Excuse me. (laughs) 
The third and final established fact is that there was a document which also outlined a future for Australian Rugby League with reference to Super League that included provisions for only two clubs, which were East and Manly. Those are the three established facts. East and Manly? So this this is where it all starts to unravel and the accounts vary. So one story is that the document John Singleton had with him is the document that had the two Sydney clubs, East and Manly. And who was the author of the document? Also very murky, Andrew. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so in one version of events, it was commissioned by the Packer Murdoch Telecom Consortium, which in 1994 briefly had the opportunity to end the war before it started. God. So Packer and Murdoch decided to get together to ostensibly crush Australis, who were at that point the only up-and-running pay TV company in Australia. All these old company names you never hear of again. (laughs) That quickly fell apart, leading to, you know, the Super League War, basically. But in the meantime, in one version of this story, they commissioned a blueprint for Australian Rugby League. In one version of that, that blueprint was authored by John Singleton. So their blueprint was to have a team on the northern beaches that gets around 8,000 people to their stupid little ground and one that gets about 5,000 people on the eastern beaches and they leave the entire west of Sydney and south of Sydney empty. Was that their idea? Okay, hold on to that because that, that's very relevant. <laughs> so in that version of events, it's given what we know and what the clubs knew about the ownership of pay TV rights in Australia, which belonged to Kerry Packer. That was, in effect, the ARL's future for Australian Rugby League. And this was used as the justification by Gary McIntyre for going to Super League, that they saw this document which basically said that Canterbury didn't have a future, so they had no choice but to jump ship. Now, this version is disputed by John Singleton. So in this version, we're getting more of an idea of where Singleton fit in to this whole thing. So he authored this this report uh, and was involved that way because of his you know relationship with Kerry Packer but the way he he talked about it at the time basically discounts this possibility because he claimed that he wasn't the author of it and actually discounted the idea that the document he had mentioned Ace and Manly as the only teams in his words this comes from Jared McCracken's book he said it's crazy to su- suggest Ace and Manly were the only Sydney teams in option A 70% of the population live west of Parramatta, and I would have immediately picked it up. Yeah, I believe that. But did you uh, translate that from Shakespearean English? <laughs> so that led to the, the idea that someone had doctored that document to strengthen the case for going to Super League. In Roy Masters' account, that document had come from John Rebo and... Roy Masters suggested that maybe it was a fake sent out to spook a club like Canterbury into signing with Super League. We're getting into espionage territory here. Well, Do you you think rugby league people are going to be going on the fake document spooking route? I don't, except for the fact that in the book, in his Inside Out book, he said that Rebo said, I could tell you something about that, but it would have to be off record. And Roy Masters said, well, I don't want to hear it then. Right. And then in Gary Lester's account in his book, Dogs of War, he suggests that Rebo's, the documents from Rebo were basically dossiers on Sydney clubs outlining the you know pros and, and cons of joining a Super League. So I, I'll leave it to our listeners to, and as we go along the rest of the episode, to make your own minds up about where this document came from and what it meant. I can see Super League wanting two Sydney clubs, right? I can see that happening. There's no way in the hell they're choosing those two. No. Parramatta will be one. 
Or Canterbury, for that matter. Yeah. And basically, from that point on, Canterbury were publicly linked with Super League and were never too far away from discussion of who was in and who was out from there on. Yeah. So regardless of all that, it's laughable to take the tactic they did once they'd signed with Super League and it was all out in the open. So the decision to go to Super League was ratified by the members in July of 1995 with a meeting at Canterbury Leagues Club, which overwhelmingly got up. So the final vote was 448-4 to two against. <laughs> so I, I find it funny that like these huge decisions are voted on by like, local yeah. fans. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so funny because some at the time claimed that it was a, a bit of a cynical exercise because they tacked into the same vote the decision to return to Belmore Oval and drop the name Sydney Bulldogs. It's so cruel. So they put that all in, in the one vote, uh, overwhelmingly got up. But in the aftermath of that meeting, Gary McIntyre took out a full-page ad in The Telegraph outlining the reasons for Canterbury going to Super League. And he, I'll just read this. 26 of our top players and our coach decided to enter into contracts to play with Super League. Your club followed them into Super League so it could continue to participate in the major rugby league competition. I think it's so unbelievably craven to put it on the players yeah. after all of that. Yeah, yeah. And then in the same article, he's you know promotes the virtues of Super League and trashes the ARL you know, suggesting they would have to merge if they didn't go to Super League, saying, we were presented with an exciting proposal by Super League, its vision for rugby league throughout the world. The proposal addressed the problems being experienced in the game by clubs and players and guaranteed that Super League would be the best rugby league competition in the world. We want to be part of that vision. So basically, the players sign on March 30. Canterbury officials see the document and decide, you know what? Yeah. We might as well go because this is great. Our, Our players have gone and this looks great. Pretty weak, isn't it? Must have been uh, pre the banning of the word vision that, that yeah. editorial. <laughs> but leaving aside this intrigue and skullduggery, uh, temporarily, we're going to be seeing a lot more skullduggery over the course of the next hour. One point that needs to be made is that Canterbury were the absolutely critical signing for Super League. You could argue that they were the most important of all. I didn't think of them that way originally, but the further we go along, I, I get it. You needed a Sydney club, or you, you needed multiple, but you needed a strong Sydney That's club, right, yeah. which Canterbury were. You needed a wealthy Sydney club, which Canterbury were. And you needed a Sydney club that were established yeah. and traditional. Like, there was too much of a uh, Johnny-come-lately vibe. Yeah, exactly. So this leads us to the title of this chapter, What the Bullfrog Knew. We spoke in an earlier episode about how the party line from the Bulldogs that remains to this day is that Peter Moore wasn't involved in Super League talks and was unaware of developments at the club. And I've spent much of the past month trying to get to the bottom of this, so we're going to spend some time examining my findings. But I don't want to set this up in some cynical manufactured way, so I'll say at the start, he knew. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but regardless of that, the in- arguments involved on either side reveal some intriguing factors. So we're going to look into it. So let's start with the defense argument. So the first theory, the most common one, was that he was left out of discussions because he was viewed as being too close to the ARL. Even if that's the case, we can tell by part one of this episode that he would have uh, messages coming back via indirect sources that he would know everything that was going on. Yeah. And so he actually attended a meeting with Ken Cowley, David Smith and Graham Lovett, alongside Ken Arthurson and John Quayle on the 30th of January. So just before that February 6th meeting. He was there as a, an ARL representative, basically. And you could argue that this is where the playing both sides criticism that Moore would later have to wear would come into it. 
But it also strengthens the argument that he was too close to the ARL in the eyes of not only Super League people, but his own club, Canterbury. How did he not be there? He's on the board. Yeah. <laughs> Graham Hughes actually has a good account of this time in his book, uh, Dogs at War. <laughs> and so he doesn't give a time frame for this, but at some point in late 1994, he went to a meeting with Gary McIntyre and the league's club general manager, John Ballesty, where he, he was asked about what the dogs should do and he advised them that they should go to Super League. Wow. Uh, this led to Graeme Hughes being accused of being a News Limited operative. Stooge, if you will. Yeah, from uh, John Quayle. A charge with Gra- which Graeme Hughes refutes absolutely in his book, while at the same time, at other points in the book, talking about he then organised talks between News Limited and St George and News Limited and Newcastle. <laughs> so, I don't know. But in every version of his story, he says that more was left out of it. So I'll just read this from his book. Because of Bullfrog being on the board of the ARL and his close friendship with Manly's Ken Arthurson, who'd already declared that the Sea Eagles would remain with the status quo, it was decided to keep my uncle out of the negotiations. Which on that, him being on the board, makes me think maybe that too close to the ARL line wasn't born out of high-minded ideals or old-school respect for his friendship, but some kind of expedience. So would an ARL board member negotiating with News Limited open the dogs up to legal action or expulsion from the competition yeah but regardless as we mentioned before this idea was supported by the super league whiteboard which made no mention of peter moore and had gary mcintyre as the key bulldogs contact but the other side of this beyond the arco relationship and the rest of it was another feeling on the news limited side so canberra chief executive kevin neal said we didn't involve him because we didn't trust him but it's pretty clear that the peter moore can't be trusted line is more than just a deflection He was widely known as a bloke that couldn't always be trusted. And there was genuine animosity between Moore and Rebo before the war. And who knows how many other club executives had, you know, bad relationships with him. Well, everyone that went to that lunch, probably. (laughs) And that lack of trust wasn't just coming from the News Limited side. It was even within his own building. So that leads to the next argument that he'd somehow been sidelined by Gary McIntyre. So... We know the Super League push was driven by the Leagues Club. We saw that in the way that talk started, which exposes again those Byzantine arrangements between leagues and football clubs. But it was repeated publicly on a number of occasions that it was the Leagues Club behind it all. So at that July meeting in 1995 where the members ratified the decision to stay with Super League, Graeme Hughes had a, gave a speech, which is actually up on YouTube, so you can uh, watch that now which i did recently and it was interesting that he goes out of his way to state that talks regarding super league had been with the leagues club not the football club so on the 11th of june 1995 peter moore said this the first contact between news limited and my leagues club was on february 21 i only recently found this out Uh, he goes on uh, to talk about gary mcintyre's involvement and said gary told me that he had not committed the football club as if that's some yeah, equivocation, you know, so the players in the leagues club have signed, but the football club's free to make up their own mind. <laughs> I'm confused. How does a leagues club sign with Super League with no football operations? <laughs> what are they going to put out 13 pokies on the field? Yeah, so, so this is where it gets really hard to understand this relationship, except for the fact that where's the money coming from? Well, I get the fact that they can just withdraw the money and they, and they have to do what they say, but they would have to go through the football club after that. 
Yeah, yeah. Ultimatum. Yeah, but I guess the idea is that the football club's hands are tied. Yeah, if, but my, my point is, like, how is a Leeds club signing with a rugby league competition? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But so in this version, it, it exposes some of that tension between the Leagues Club and the Football Club, which we saw at the dawn of the reform ticket in 1969 and is something that never really left. And in fact, Peter Moore and Gary McIntyre, who had arrived not long after Peter Moore, uh, had a very tempestuous relationship. And, and that was from the start. So I spoke to Gary Lester in preparation for this episode, who literally wrote the book on the Bulldogs. Well, the books, he's, he's written a few of them now. Uh, and he said that when he was there in the early 70s, he was, you know, a young guy on, on the writing scene at the, at the time and had formed a relationship with Peter Moore. And Peter Moore one day saw him in the Leagues Club talking to Gary McIntyre and it was a completely innocuous conversation about some squash courts. Later, Peter Moore had, had bailed Gary Lester up and said, what are you talking to McIntyre for? <laughs> it wasn't the same squash courts that Tommy Radonikas referred, was it? <laughs> So in one of Gary Lester's books, uh, From Berries to Bulldogs, which came out in the early 90s, Gary McIntyre argued that the league's club is the most important factor in a football club's success, not the gate takings, not the New South Wales Rugby League. And then he went on to talk about the job being done by the league's club, saying, In 1982, the Canterbury League's Club board of directors were heading down the wrong direction. Both the league club and the football club were down the tube. The league club could not pay a grant in 1983. That's how bad things were. In 1990, the Canterbury League's Club announced a trading profit of $4.4 million, the largest profit made by a club in New South Wales. How can a gambling den not make enough money to pay a grant? <laughs> I'll never understand it, but I think he has a point in that from the 50s on, the best way to dominate on and off the field was to have a strong legs club. That's a very true and sad statement that we all ignore with our blood on our hands, but um, I'm talking about the 83. Yeah. <laughs> so he has another point in that the main reason that the dogs were in such a position of strength was because of the strength of their legs club. So that tension was was manifest during the war. And on that issue of leagues clubs not wanting to pay football clubs, it led to my one of my favourite quotes about the issue. So this was in a, a Norm Tasker column on Canterbury more generally. The club has plans for extensions of, and developments worth about $60 million, and there is little doubt they'd feel better placed to optimise their future if they did not have the football cost hanging around their necks. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Well, like, just open a casino. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. get out of football. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of that Larry Sanders episode where Jay Moore and Bob Odenkirk's agent characters are yeah. snorting cocaine in the green room, complaining about how much easier their jobs would be if it wasn't for the talent. <laughs> One of the great shows, Larry Sanders. <laughs> but you can also see in that statement from Gary McIntyre, the, the league's club is the most important factor in a football's club's success. So... You can maybe see this as Gary McIntyre feeling that he was left out a bit. Bullfrog was the figurehead. He was the one getting all the acclaim. I, I bring this up after reading a 1989 column by Roy Masters that talked about the internal dynamics at Canterbury. At most clubs, it's not whether you win or lose that matters, but who gets the, the blame. At Canterbury, it's different. The Bulldogs, as the most successful club of the 80s, are more concerned with who gets the credit. <laughs> well put. So with all that, I was thinking, well, maybe there was this power struggle that Gary McIntyre had started to win by this point in time, that, you know, maybe Bullfrog was being pushed out. When I asked Gary Lester about this, he refuted that and said, no, I, I don't think that's true at all. It was the same squabbles they'd had from the start, but nothing had really changed in the dynamic. 
But what you can see at this time is stories coming out in the press against Moore or, you know, suggesting that his future at Canterbury was clouded, which was something that you'd never see in the years previously. I never thought about this, by the way, is like, I kind of just thought they all got on reasonably well, league clubs and football clubs, but surely these football guys despise dealing with these like club people. But the thing about it is, at most clubs, the league's club guys are football guys too. Right. Like, well, one thing that Gary Lester said that stood out to me was that both Peter Moore and Gary McIntyre were Canterbury through and through. Like, yeah, right. That's place. good. And you think about you know the heads of league's clubs all over the place. You, you often see ex-players or people who have been involved with the club for long periods of time. Right. Which, again, like makes it so funny when they're you know, withholding funds and, and all the rest of it. Mm. The other side of the argument, which is the more compelling one, is that he knew. He had to have known. So just in what we've been talking about, Canterbury publicly identified as Super League players from the earliest days of Super League. At the time, Peter Moore was uh, labelled a close friend of Ken Cowley. This is something that he refuted, saying that the first time he met him was <laughs> was at that January 30 meeting with Arthurson and Quayle, which in some eyes was hard to believe. Uh, Roy Masters had two of those eyes, saying that at the February 6 meeting, Ken Cowley came out and said, I wanted to indicate that Peter Moore had not been secretly to News Limited. In Roy Masters' words, while defending Moore, Cowley even went so far as to tell the club presidents and chief executives on 6th of February, of his history as a Canterbury junior footballer. It seems strange he would take such steps to defend a man whom he'd only met seven days earlier. And the other evidence against the idea that Moore had had no discussions with Ken Cowley prior to the 30th of January came from John Singleton, who's sweared that on multiple, multiple occasions he'd heard Peter Moore say, Ken Cowley's assured me if there's a Super League, Canterbury will be in it. Right. So again, there's nothing definitive there. A, a lot of it's circumstantial. And, and the, the prosecution's case is built on weight of evidence rather than any smoking gun. So I'm just going to keep going with some of the other factors. So just a small one. Steve Mortimer in May of, of 1995 said in the Rugby League Week that he'd had a meeting with Peter Moore and Chris Anderson about the Super League affair. And I came away convinced that they wanted Super League and nothing would stop them pursuing it. And that Chris Anderson connection right there is perhaps the the most compelling piece of evidence. So surely his son-in-law wouldn't keep it from him. No, you wouldn't think so, would you? And beyond anything else, if all this is true, then he's probably not fit to be running the club. <laughs> and th this brings me to the, the central argument, which I'm weighing up between calling it the bullfrog paradox or Schrodinger's bullfrog. <laughs> But everyone I spoke to, everything written about the subject has the same essential argument. He knew because he had to have known. Like whatever your evidence you want to cite, whatever misdirection you want to throw, there's no scenario where Moore's leagues club, players, family members jump ship and he doesn't know about it. What is the benefit of saying he didn't know about it? I don't understand. This is what I still can't understand. That's why I was thinking maybe it was that, uh, expedience thing that at the time the dogs were worried about legal action. He's not the first guy to make up a fictional account of knowing when it occurred either, but I mean, this is weird. But I think it is true that he wasn't a major part of discussions. I can accept that. I just can't accept that he wasn't aware and advising or pulling strings mm. behind the scenes. Yeah. 
it's been a really interesting research journey, but ultimately frustrating that I've gone through all of this. I've asked so many people. I've looked at all these sources. I've you know put this account against this account and tried to come up with some you know third thing of truth from the two of them. And I'm left where I started. He knew because he had to have known. <laughs> but is this not, as you coined in episode one, uh, very bullfrogging? It is, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's very key to understanding the man, really. <laughs> well, you compared him to the, the Fermi paradox and the uh, Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> I think he's like quantum physics. Like the truth is just a bunch of particles and doesn't exist until Bullfrog looks at it yeah. <laughs> and observes the truth. So if, if anyone listening at home has any unified theory of bullfrog, please <laughs> send them in. Genius. Uh, so let's get to it. April Fool's Day. So in our Arco episode, we recounted Peter Moore's resignation from Arco's side. Now I want to get to Peter Moore's version of the same story. And this account was published as part of the so-called Peter Moore Papers in Ian Head's Sun Herald column on the 11th of June, 1995, which was an unbelievable source for this episode. And in fact, the reason I reached out to Ian Heads was because of this column. So basically, he turned over his column to Peter Moore to basically give his version of events, uh, and which led me to go, well, if, if Ian's willing to give him all this column space, you know, maybe maybe that's the truth to it. Maybe like this is the real deal. But I think it was more just this was a very important story to get in the press rather than, you know, being Ian's endorsement of the truth. Yeah, but also uh, you and I know him to be a very astute man. If someone said, can I come and do your job for a few weeks? You'd say, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm just going to read this account and uh, note that unless stated otherwise, any direct bullfrog quote from here out uh, comes from those Peter Moore papers. I arrived at Phillips Street from the airport, 20 minutes late, knocked on the boardroom door, went in, and asked Ken if I could see him privately. In Paul Broughton's office, I told Ken that many of our players had signed with Super League and that I believed I had no choice but to resign as a matter of principle. I told Ken the football club had never been involved with News Limited, but that the players' actions, undertaken without my knowledge, had made my position untenable. Ken agreed. I then offered to make myself available to the board for questioning, but Ken pointed out that the boardroom was full of extra people, including James Packer, Optus representatives and lawyers. We shook hands and I went home. For questioning. <laughs> Even that is a disputed version with John Quayle saying, Moore was sacked. He decided to tell people he'd resigned. <laughs> but two to one, I'm going to go, you know, we've got Arco and Moore both saying that that's the way it happened. So I'm going to discount John Quayle's version there, except to state that in John Quayle's eyes, he would have been sacked and... You know, so therefore it's semantics yeah, as right, to who right. shot who. You know? <laughs> so the next thing Bullfrog did was to inform the press, which he did via his nephew, Graham Hughes, giving him the scoop for an interview for Channel 7. So in that interview, he spoke of his relationship with Arthurson, but affirmed his commitment to the cause, saying, apart from my wife, he's the best person I've ever met, but it's business. I've been saying for five years we should be cutting the number of Sydney clubs. From that point of view, the decision was easy. Again, a lot of clarity reached in the course of two days of (laughs) finding out your players had signed and making the decision. I do love the fact that he still shows love for Arthurson there. Yeah. Must have been heart-wrenching. That isn't in any doubt. Whatever you want to say about either men, this was an absolutely genuine 
emotion between them. Mm. And that maybe led to how ready Arthurson was to accept Peter Moore's version. So at the time, in, in Arthurson's book, he said that about Peter Moore not knowing, if you tell me that, I have to accept it, but you've got to understand why no one else is accepting it. No one who knew you could ever accept that such things could happen at Canterbury without your knowledge or without your stamp of approval. Here it is, the biggest thing that's ever happened in the history of the club, and you're telling people you didn't know anything about it. So he's done all the work in his head, yeah. but still came out with the idea that he was telling the truth. And in a later, this actually came from the John McDonnell book, Menenga Superstarter Super League. He quantified this slightly saying, if ever the game folds, there'll be half a dozen blokes held responsible. Those people like Peter Moore who said the only reason they defected was on the express understanding the ARL would run the game. They've been hoaxed. Like almost making him out to be some kind of victim. Right, yeah. That he was, you know, hoodwinked by news. You know, as if like he needed that justification in his head to go on. It's kind of sweet, isn't it? Yeah. It's like a, a mother that the gangster's son, look, he's no angel, but he wouldn't kill someone. Yeah. <laughs> We'll get the smoking gun in the video footage, but, you know. <laughs> so Ken Arthurson believed Bullfrog's account, but game-wide, he was about the only one that did. And this began before April 1. So remembering that the dogs had been linked to Super League since mid-1994, at that February 6 meeting, Bullfrog copped it uh, from a couple of people there for having a foot in both camps. So Nick Politis and George Piggins were particularly strident about his perceived treachery there was a you know stand-up argument at one point between them where peter moore actually threatened to sue nick politis over his accusations and nick politis said go ahead make my day <laughs> now is this another young turk situation at this point politis coming through i, I think there's something to that because i'm, I'm going to talk about george piggins reaction to uh, peter moore's actions as well but peter moore actually wrote George Piggins a letter in the wake of that February 6 meeting. And I'm just going to read part of that. Dear George, I was never about to cancel out the great association that I've had with your club and your family. Public criticism does not bother me when it comes to, from the likes of Nick Politis. He doesn't rate as a friend or administrator. <laughs> However, you're a friend and a very respected administrator who would influence a lot of people. Who would you think would be the better administrator out of Nick Politis and George Piggins? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think that the, the track record of one against the other would suggest politis but Mind you, it's apples and oranges yeah and, uh, that that's the thing i don't think it's something you could really compare it's just so funny that he's trashing politis like that <laughs> uh politis came out hard against uh the super league defectors in the wake of that first court decision on the idea of them being welcomed back into the fold he said all I can say is that those Judases had better get on their bikes and leave town because, brother, they're going down. They've got no future in the ARL. I don't mind when people want to compete with you, but not when they go behind your back. That's why it's so hard to say let's forgive and forget. We all sat there on February 6th, and within 24 hours they went behind our backs again. That's gross disloyalty. Back to the old paradox of uh, who are you supposed to be loyal to, your competitors or your own club? Yeah. But so that was the tenor of that meeting. And Peter Moore was very defensive about his role in it all, saying... That meeting finished on a sour note for me as I was telling the absolute truth, and very few believed me. Many, it seemed, had their minds set on the various media references to my club and Super League. But from that point on, that letter aside, Peter Moore's relationship with George Piggins was over. So in Piggins' book, he said, Once I had the utmost respect for Bullfrog Moore, but I lost that totally because of what he did in 1995. And it was a bloody shame for them to turn me against a bloke 
who I thought once was so good for rugby league. I didn't even go to his funeral when he died in 2000. In my view, he was a Judas. <laughs> I, I mean, literally taking the feud after death yeah. in, into the afterlife. Right? <laughs> and so obviously after April 1, Peter Moore's name was a dirty one around ARL circles. Uh, in fact, on that Judas call, he and Punchy Nelson were dubbed Punch and Judas. <laughs> I know it was a testy time and everything, but Christ, just one club going to Super League. Other clubs went to Super League. I know, I know he was on the board and I know he was this, that and the other, but it's not that different to some, to some other people. Well, it is. And it, it comes down to that being on the board for so long, right. being part of the, the furniture at Phillip Street. Let me ask you this. Say Super League got up, they got Newcastle and ARL uh, capitulated. Would he be looked at as a genius now? Well, leaving any morality aside, could anybody possibly argue that going to Super League wasn't the best thing for the dogs to do? Yeah, I agree. Like looking at them now, there, there was never any question of the dogs merging. They went to Super League and from then on their future was set. So, I mean, that's my point is that he's being... People are boycotting his funeral, right? He's been called Judas. He's really only looking out for the club. But he was on the ARL board. So, but there's a, all's fair in love and war in some respects. I think he's getting a slightly rough bashing. Well, possibly because he was detested more than the, the likes of John Rebo and, and the ones actually running Super League. He's just taken the old sign the player when everyone's at lunch routine to a higher level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that friendship that he maintained with Ken Arthurson was viewed by some as a problem at Phillip Street. So at a board meeting, Arco was advised to, to stay away from him. But what it really did was bring to the boil a long-standing tension between Peter Moore and John Quayle. So this goes back to the time of incorporation where Quayle was brought in partly to rid the game of that old mates brigade that had run the game for so long. So despite what we've said about Peter Moore being shrewd and innovative, he was a club first guy and newspaper accounts throughout the eighties are filled with times where he and Quayle are butting heads over some administrative decision or some change in rules or, and all the rest of it. So oftentimes this would be, you know, something on the field, like there was a judiciary incident, Peter Moore's, you know, speaking out about it. John Quayle has words in the press so reading all these in light of what happened with Super League, you can really see a sense of a tense relationship going right back. Yeah. And so on both sides, once Super League hit, they you know, basically had nothing to do with each other from then on and neither would speak warmly or at all of the other. But interestingly, Ken Arthurson's close friendship with both men didn't seem to affect either. Like, I think it says a lot about the esteem he's held in by Quayle. Yeah. And also more, but particularly Quayle is like a, the admiration, so mm. it's not going to let that affect it. Yeah. I love that. And after he resigned from the board, that same day in Moore's version, he received a fax from someone on the board. Uh, I'll, I'll read his account in full. What really hurt me was a letter faxed to me later on that day. It accused me of every possible involvement with News Limited and of encouraging players to go and see the News Limited people. Further, the letter strongly suggested that my club would be expelled at a meeting to be held on April 11. At the end of the letter was a delightful touch that I may attend the meeting to show cause why the board should not expel my club. When I received that letter, I sat with my head in my hands for at least 10 minutes. 
I thought of the absolute excellence of my club's contribution to the New South Wales Rugby League over 25 years and what I believe were my own worthwhile contributions at club, New South Wales and ARL levels. I thought too of the fact that I've managed more test teams successfully than any person in the game's history. I thought to myself, how can they possibly judge me so wrongly with no evidence at all, just rumour, innuendo and maybe jealousy? (laughs) I said to myself, I'll never deal with these people again, except Ken. So Moore doesn't reveal who sent it, but given there were so few candidates, there is at least a possibility it was John Quayle. Well, you're engaging in innuendo now. And well, I'll say there's also a maybe equally possible chance that Moore made up that story. <laughs> but um, I, I love the gall of Bullfrog to think that he should be off the hook because he was a good kangaroo manager. <laughs> yeah. I think that they, they really needed a couple of scapegoats and Revo and Moore fit the bill. It's like we're very angry and we need a lightning rod. Yeah. But uh, Roy Masters uh, in his book alleges that there's unaired footage from that Graham Hughes interview on April 1 that has more mouthing off about quail. <laughs> and and so what you had after April 1 was a long-standing tension, not an outright feud, but something that I think everyone in the inner circle of the game would have known about the relationship between the two men yeah. suddenly going public. Uh, and in his preface to the Peter Moore papers, Ian Heads notes that Moore diplomatically and studiously avoids all but a passing reference to ARL chief executive John Quayle, with whom he's had a serious falling out. How much do you think is uh, the jealousy of the other for getting too close to Ken? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I, I don't think that's at the top of the list, well, Ken, to be honest. Ken's my best mate. Mate, what are you doing coming out of my territory? But after Canterbury's semi-final win against Canberra in 1995, it was written about that they'd had a thawing out of their feud and John Quayle went down to the Canterbury dressing rooms and it was a great spirit. Peter Moore said in the Rugby League Week, it was good to see him. He was given the warmest possible welcome in our room. We were very happy to see him. He was genuine in all he had to say and I think he relaxed and enjoyed himself. So despite a performatively convivial repeat of the act after the following week's grand final norm tasker in that week's rugby league week gave no illusions as to the actual state of play saying it couldn't last of course the predators remain and the court battles were back on in earnest this week but it was nice to see some brief civility and to remember what we once were tragic so of course in actual fact the relationship between quail and moore was never healed uh and, and i want to talk about the the toll that the war took on quail which we talked about with you know his weekly tennis game with ron coote yeah how annoying would it have been that the bulldogs won 95 for them yeah (laughs) but once the dogs signed there was an even stronger sense that there'd be no place for john quayle in any unified competition and you wonder if there's an element of settling scores in all of this so obviously we've talked about peter moore and john quayle's relationship we saw the antagonistic relationship we had with rebo it seems like... I think there's definitely an element of the selling scores, but it's also practical. You can't have two warring generals no. at peacetime. And the other side of it is that his cause wasn't helped by the fact that he consistently took the hardline approach. So Arco attempted to be conciliatory. You can see multiple attempts from him at brokering a compromise. Quayle was staunchly opposed to dealing with the defectors, which kind of goes back to the idea of Quayle being arrogant which was a common charge coming from the news limited side and this idea has been roundly rejected by anyone i've spoken to 
who knew Quayle. So a column in defense of John Quayle at the height of all this by Ian Heads is typical of the way people speak about him. I've heard the word abrasive used about him and arrogant. I must say they're not characteristics I've noticed in the bloke in the years I've known him, although he has a certain jokey confrontational style and is definitely forthright in nature. He's closer to modest and self-effacing than arrogant. I can still see him dragging photos of himself out of the book True Blue, declaring that others deserve far more attention than he. He's a deflector of tension from himself. But isn't this what we discussed earlier in the series? He's, he was the head kicker for Arco. And the other side of it is, I think, and again, it's not just Ian Heads. I've read and heard from multiple people that he is a very you know, modest, humble bloke and doesn't have any arrogance to him. But I think from everything we've discussed over the course of this series, I think there was maybe an institutional arrogance. Yeah. We can see that with some of the actions we've described as missteps, the going to 20 teams, mm. the resting on laurels, all the rest of it. That's a really good way of putting it, institutional arrogance. It's like, well, this is the decision we've made. It's got to be right. Yeah. But on his unwillingness to compromise, I can actually really respect him for that at the same time that I would criticize someone like Jeff Cousins for his refusal to compromise. Like with Jeff Cousins, it's refusing to compromise to protect your product that barely exists. Yeah. With Quail, it's protecting the game that has been your entire life. Well, I think we can go on record and say that Jeff Cousins never played the game. <laughs> but this is the thing. It's like we're talking about old hard-headed footballers, aren't we? Yeah. So, I mean, staring down Ken Cowley is just the tip of the iceberg, mm. it would seem. A-plus <laughs> <laughs> for loyalty, though. Yeah. But... So Quayle and Piggins Politis weren't the only ones that had issues with Peter Moore. Uh, one of the most scathing came in the wake of that initial court victory in February 1996 when Justice Burchett read out his judgment. Uh, Peter Moore dealt with particularly harshly with questions about his trustability. Burchett saying, He was a particularly unimpressive witness whose evidence I would not accept on any contested issue unless it happened to accord with my own view of the probabilities. Even like... <laughs> in a court of law, he's like... <laughs> the bullfrogging in ways. <laughs> hurt him. Uh, his integrity called into question. Well, and this whole judgment was flipped, so... I exactly. And when the time comes, I, I want to dissect uh, Burchett's style and his judgment at length. But... At this point in time, I, I think it's worthwhile just reading out what he did say about Yeah, I agree, but I mean, we keep having all these uh, attacks on Bullfrog, right? Justified or not, but he always seems to come out on top, mm. eventually. So in Burchett's opinion, he was completely corrupted and shut his eyes to the obligations to the club and to the league, which, I mean, his obligations to the club would, was to do the best for them, which... Well, I mean, my point is this, yeah, like it's quite a bad breach of... Uh fiduciary duty to the ARL, but you want to have the club bosses on your ARL board open it, yourself up to it's, it. It's a mess they created for themselves. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. But at the same time, I, I can't get away from the fact that he was a board member. Like, you have responsibilities to that board. Crazy times, though. Mm. Is there going to be a game tomorrow? You know? <laughs> Is there going to be a board? But the last uh, character summation I, I want to include is that from Phil Gould in his book, Obviously, there's some historical baggage there going back to 1989. Uh, and in fact, when she heard Justice Burchett say that Bullfrog had been completely corrupted, Phil Gould's mum actually said that she could die happy now. <laughs> you know where Gus gets his feuding skills from. 
But so this this summation of Peter Moore from Phil Gould, regardless of what you think of its accuracy, I think it's worth reading. So again, this is from his book, Good as Gold. I didn't need Justice Burchett to tell me about Peter Moore's character. I learned about that firsthand. The man known as Bullfrog is an odd contrast in character. There are times when he can be disarming and even charming. If I saw him today, I'd not mind having a drink with him. He can be very funny and good company. I often wondered about the relationship between Peter Moore and his former coach, Warren Ryan. Moore's apparent single-mindedness in trying to put Ryan out of the game was wrong. What amazed me during the Super League war was to hear players like Simon Gillies, even Terry Lamb, say that they didn't want to go back to play for that ARL, considering the way it was run, when the fact was it was very much Peter Moore running the ARL, via his influence and the power over the media, which he used for his own self-interest and power, and unlike Phil Gould, yeah. <laughs> uh, and to push his club and family, his influence over the game was significant. I do not regret Peter Moore's departure from the ARL. In my view, if there was one good aspect of the Super League intrusion, and this is definitely the only one, it was the end of Peter Moore as a power broker in the ARL. I believe that had Peter Moore remained loyal to the ARL, to the game and to his friend of 40 years, Ken Arthurson, Super League would not have found a footing. Peter Moore has been quoted as saying Ken Arthurson was his best friend in life. To do what he did to Arthurson says enough about Peter Moore without the need for any further embellishment. Well, that's a scathing uh, piece there, but I mean... What's that saying? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Gus became that. Yeah. What he's just uh, destroying him for there, in my view, he became that. Yeah. And as I said in our very first episode, there are no heroes in this story. (laughs) But on that friendship, it was clear that Peter Moore's defection was the ultimate dagger for Arco, saying that I've had some black moments over the years, but that was one of the worst. I felt emotional about it. I felt like the whole rugby league world was falling apart around me. God. And that was not only the potential loss of a friend but an ally saying that you know he's the bloke that i'd always had by my side and this is the time where i need him the most and he's on the other team it's cruel but it's also a bit like we've well, had a good run controlling everything on a marionette for 20 years <laughs> yeah so, <you> know. <laughs> and on the other side peter moore was no doubt genuinely upset about the way everything played out uh, in graham hughes hughes's book he said Bullfrog was seen in some ARL circles as a pariah. That broke his heart. He told me, and I believe him, that he only ever acted in the interests of the Bulldogs, and this was no exception. So, again, for the hundredth time, it goes back to that, yes, you did look after the Bulldogs, but you're also on the ARL board. (laughs) But that leads to the other qualifications. So his remorse was a genuine emotion, but it was about the consequences, not the action. He spoke publicly on multiple occasions about how Canterbury going to Super League was the right decision. And as we've discussed, it, it was. I wonder where they'd be if they didn't. So despite press accounts saying that Arco and Bullfrog had fallen out, very quickly it was obvious that both men wanted to preserve their friendship. In fact, on... It couldn't have been the same. Well, it, it wasn't because they obviously both had a lot, a lot in their plates and were you know, not seeing each other at Phillips Street anymore. Mm. But it's so funny that on April 12, there was a Sherlock column talking about how it seems like the friendship will be preserved. So I don't know how Sherlock was privy to you know, the inner workings of <laughs> Arkham Bullfrog's friendship, but, but there it was. And that's basically how their relationship over the next couple of years played out. There was always a tenuous hold on it because of the fact that they were on opposite sides. They couldn't be seeing each other in public as often. And because of his position as ARL boss, Arthurson had no choice but to publicly blast more at times 
you know, rarely doing it alone, always putting him in the company as, you know, Peter Gow and Reba, whoever else. But their relationship was publicly caught up in the toxicity that engulfed the game. But ultimately their friendship was too strong. So on grand final day, you know, bullfrogs, dogs beating Arcos, eagles, they met in the SEG trust box and, and had a long chat. Bullfrog saying there's been a lot of pain and a lot of emotion in the whole thing, but I sense that's fading and that that's the best thing that could happen. None of us are in the business to make bad friends. For just about the first time, I feel there's some hope. A couple of months later, they met at a Greek restaurant for a pre-Christmas lunch uh, and you know, had a long afternoon basically not talking about football. And Arthurson saying of it, I would never do anything to hurt him personally or say anything against him personally any more than he would for me. I know that. I just hope when it all settles down, I'm hoping it will settle down and we're all back together again. Our friendship will continue as it's been over the years. They're real gentlemen, aren't they? Those two. And I think Moore's remorse is borne out by the multiple attempts throughout 1995 he made to broker peace. I love the dignity of Arthurson, though. We've mentioned it before, but he's just a very dignified man. Mm. And I think he could really use that to his, his advantage. We heard last week Peter Moore saying that Arco was the biggest bullshitter in the game and he was number two. I think because he had that gentlemanly, uh, I don't want to say facade because I think it's a very real thing. but uh, You could play on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Peter Moore wasn't going to be fooling anyone if he tried to adopt that approach, (laughs) but Arco could use that to his advantage. But Bullfrog was angling to get Arco a job as Super League boss trying to arrange a compromise what's he thinking (laughs) and he similarly uh contacted the new south wales rugby league board to offer his services as a mediator between the two camps so the official minuted version of the new south wales response was that peter moore's offer was received and noted (laughs) (laughs) i'd I'd love to hear the full discussion he wants arco as the head of head of super league right like what what next george piggins is the media liaison (laughs) (laughs) there there are a number of meetings between moore and the two cans cowley and arthurson throughout 1995 where they were really trying to get them back together get, get a compromise but ultimately that division was too great So back to the Peter Moore papers, he said of it, A similarly genuine desire for compromise did not exist in Phillip Street. From my knowledge of the depth and extent of compromise offered by Ken Cowley, it's now very apparent to me that Phillip Street was never really interested in compromise. Over the last month, I've tried very hard to find some common ground, to reach a position of compromise. Through that time, I've greatly admired the attitude of two very honourable men. However, I can't go any further. I've done my best, but I'm afraid that it just won't happen now. For Phillip Street there, you can probably read one Jay Quayle. But regardless, that was basically it for any kind of compromise from the Peter Moore side of things anyway. But that leads us to what came next for Peter Moore. So because he was, you know, the elder statesman of News Limited administration, it was talked in the press almost instantly from April 1 that he was going to be in line to be Super League chairman. Two days after he learned about it, he's going to be the chairman. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny the way it was reported because it was just talked about like he'd already been offered the position. Like he was referred to in the press as Super League chairman Peter Moore. On that uh, trying to get Arco the job, it was reported that he was willing to stand down as Super League chairman to give Arco the position. 
Why would they want to have an old school administrator from Sydney run this soon to be Chinese market dominating <laughs> Super League? And in May of 1995, John Rebo publicly discounted the idea of Peter Moore being elected Super League chairman, saying that they'd be hiring someone within the next few weeks that was a very high profile person that would be an exciting appointment, which it doesn't seem like any chairman actually ever was appointed. So you had Rebo as CEO, you had Morris Lindsay as English boss and, you know, controlling the global Super League, but there doesn't seem to be a chairman in their corporate structure. Yeah. So in the end, he took on a different role within Super League administration, becoming, you know, an overseer of their recruitment and development side of things. And this was because his time at Canterbury was coming to an end. So in Graham Hughes' account, by the mid-90s, he was past his prime. As he puts it, for as long as I'd known him, he'd been a chain smoker of camel cigarettes without filters and a big drinker of scotch whiskey. It all had an enormous effect on his life. And beyond his you know, personal decline, his way of administration, also the long lunches and the you know, boozy networking wasn't the way it was going to be run from then on out. So Bullfrog was increasingly becoming an anachronism within Canterbury. We haven't talked much about the drinking. Was he a heavy drinker? Yeah, a, a daily scotch kind of guy. So, Well, how much scotch? Well, by all reports, a lot. Right. And then there were questions over his spending at Canterbury. During the 1995 Rugby World Cup in South Africa, he flew over on a, <laughs> you know, expensive scouting mission. Well, this is the thing. I used to hear about jokes within the newspapers about his writing of expense accounts and innuendo about that as a kid. Yeah. And I knew about it. Yeah. If I knew about it. <laughs> but again, I, I think it would have been probably around this time that those stories would be coming out. Um, right. Because you, you were definitely hearing a lot more whispers and a lot more open, you know, criticism of him that in, in this era than you were before. And there's an element of the Godfather to it. So in, in Graham Hughes's book, he puts it, I told him that nowadays people who in the past would never have dared to were taking him on, showing a lack of respect. Yeah. We only touched on it in this episode, but the, the controlling of the media is such a big part of rugby mm. league success. Yeah. To control your narrative. Mm. And, I mean, he was the best at it for so long. And now uh, that's Gus. Yeah. But so Peter Moore fell out uh, basically permanently with Graham Hughes in the midst of all this when Graham Hughes actually went up and basically told him that he was past it and he should probably consider stepping down, uh, outlining some of the things we've just mentioned but probably doing it in a more respectful way. Uh, but that leading to, to Bullfrog, you know. His nephew. Yeah, his nephew and... I think these guys just, the power keeps them alive. Mm, yeah. But reading between the lines in Graham Hughes' book, I think they basically never saw each other again after oh. that. So that was in mid-1995. In his book, he said they remained on friendly terms. But in 1999, so four years after it, he was, you know, called by Punchy Nelson about it and saying, you know, oh, you're his favorite, mate. He was really hurt by what you said to him uh, and said that, Towards the end, he had a few warm phone conversations with Bullfrog from his ride cancer clinic, but that was about it. God. But I, I think despite that breakdown in their relationship, Moore could probably see where Hughes was coming from. And I think it's a real man's uh, thing to do. Mm. A guy that does not want to step down under any circumstances. Yeah. It takes a family member to be truthful. Yeah, exactly. And I think also 
because of his love from the club, it took someone who he knew loved the club just as much. Mm. So he announced his departure from Canterbury just before the grand final. And so after 26 years, the Bullfrog era was over. I wanted to end this section by noting that, yes, rugby league administration had to change and the expiration date for his style of lifestyle and leadership was up. But you can still lament the loss of something pure that went with it, something fundamental rugby league. And this description of the scene at the Dogs' first home game at Concord Oval in 1994, for me, really illustrates that old world charm that the likes of Bullfrog brought to the game. Canterbury have fought a losing battle to have orderly entry. The gates are thrown open. The crowd far exceeds the official 19,572. The ground announcer says, Mr. Peter Moore would like to thank and reels off the names of the guests, including New South Wales Rugby League Chief Executive John Quayle. A little while later is a further announcement. Mr. Peter Moore would like to thank, adding the names of others forgotten the first time round. Diplomacy. <laughs> Just like, can you imagine being at a ground now and hearing, you know, like... <laughs> the difference is now, CEOs, it's a job and yeah. a career step. Before it was a lifestyle. Exactly. That's exactly the point that I, I was making. It's that... like, it had to go, but it is something to be admired as well. Yeah. We've got a couple of those blokes left, Politis style guys. Mm. But in the absence of Peter Moore, a, a fracture pretty quickly developed at the Dogs. So in 1997, Glenn Hughes current Canterbury player and son of club legend Gary Hughes had an argument with his coach Chris Anderson at Canterbury Leagues Club at the culmination of which Glenn is said to have told Anderson why don't you get out of the club everybody hates you here <laughs> so that incident made public a family feud which had seen the Hugheses lining up against Anderson his wife Lynn and Lynn's father Peter by the time of the confrontation with Glenn Anderson and Gary Hughes weren't on speaking terms, which isn't a great situation for a team's coach and football manager to be in. Would you say that the family club aspect has backfired on this occasion? Again, because once again, it was the family that was at the centre of the whole thing. And it's so interesting how often it's Chris Anderson in particular that you know, unwittingly or not ends up in the centre of it. Yeah. This time, according to... Uh, this was a Tony Adams report... He had something directly involved. So uh, Tony Adams wrote, The drama came to a head several weeks ago when Anderson walked into a Canterbury under-19 selection meeting under the Stewart stand at Belmore Sports Ground with one request. Anderson wanted his son Ben to play halfback, but that meant Corey Hughes, son of football manager Gary Hughes, would be pushed out of his position. <laughs> All roads lead back to nepotism. <laughs> So that resulted in Anderson quitting and taking on the Melbourne job, which great career move, by yeah, the way. Yeah. Um, and at the time, he publicly acknowledged that there was some factional issues at the heart of his decision to leave. Uh, and at the heart of it all was the feud that started and outlived them all, Gary McIntyre versus Peter Moore. So in the aftermath of his resignation, a power struggle for control of the football club broke out with the Hughes backing Gary McIntyre and Chris Anderson on the other side. So in the end, Bullfrog's old mate, Bob Hagen, took over as football uh, you know, chief executive. Mm. But, but Gary McIntyre saw it as a chance to end it once and for all, angling to get Peter Moore off the league's club board, which he remained on even after he stepped down from the football club. Uh, with a, a Dean Ritchie article in 1997 in the Daily Telegraph saying, 
Sources at the club said yesterday the faction headed by McIntyre and former second rower Graham Hughes now also wants to run the football club. According to these sources, they see more with his established but old-fashioned power base as an obstacle. Now McIntyre thinks he has the numbers on his league's club board to oust more, which would mean the end of a family dynasty. And so there was a league's club vote that went six to one. You know, they asked Peter Moore to resign, but they waited till Punchy Nelson was at home with the flu. And <laughs> uh, and you know, Punchy was, was angry that they did it that way, saying, I don't think it would have happened if I'd been there. I think it would have been settled. I'm a stronger character than some others. <laughs> I mean... And Punchy Nelson and, and Peter Moore were like great allies and they were kind of cut from the same cloth. Uh, and uh, Gary Lester actually told me that on his deathbed, Bullfrog made a plea to Punchy Nelson, don't let McIntyre get hold of the football club. <laughs> what a legend. But uh, I mentioned it right there, his deathbed and all this, you know, getting him off the board and all that, it was all made academic by the fact that he came down with cancer and in 1998, that had you know basically removed him from anything but just being a, a spiritual figurehead of the club. So he was given his diagnosis and according to Lynn Anderson, was given two choices. Uh, the choice between frugal living in a longer life or drinking and smoking in a shorter one. Moore replied, I've been waiting 30 years for a doctor to tell me I can smoke and drink. <laughs> uh, and the decision was made. So the end of his life saw some touching moments which befitted his life in rugby league you know this was attending the 1998 grand final where canterbury ended up losing to brisbane in a wheelchair probably not in a good state to be attending a football game mm. really touching uh was something that ian heads told me and i'm, I'm just going to read this out it was a mark of respect and general liking for peter moore in his late days when the cancer that had flattened him was a fair way down the track and it seemed his days were numbered that members of the press corps showed their respect for him by gathering at his home with family members there to sit with him, talk some football, have a laugh, and so on. It was a happy, sad occasion. From memory, those there included Alan Clarkson, me, Jeff Prenner, maybe more. It was not long afterwards that Peter Moore died. That's beautiful. And so the end finally did come on the 5th of July 2000 with tributes pouring in, as you'd imagine. His funeral was held at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Belmore, attended by hundreds, featuring a guard of honour of past and current Bulldogs players. Uh, and giving the eulogy was Ken Arthurson, who, while fighting back tears, talked about their enduring friendship and co-opted Bullfrog's favourite line, saying, we never told lies unless it was absolutely necessary. <laughs> That's so sweet. But Arthurson speaking for his friend at the funeral isn't where I want to finish this chapter. Anyone can offer platitudes after a death, and cliched tributes don't say nearly as much of their enduring bond as does a single moment three years earlier, in 1997, a scene which took place appropriately enough at Phillip Street. Arthurson was there to launch his memoir and was joined by the entirety of rugby league administration on the ARL side, celebrating the career of a man who'd achieved so much but whose last years in the game had seen so much pain and bitterness. This was a night to forget all that, however, and spirits were high when suddenly a once-familiar figure emerged. His entrance was likened to that of a villain entering a saloon bar in an old Western movie, the room falling silent and the crowd parting. Other accounts of the night recall murmurs of what's he doing here? It was Peter Moore, back at Phillips Street for the first time since April 1, 1995, and for the last time in his life. When he asked him about it later in the evening, Ian Heads, who told me that the moment ranks as one of the bravest things he'd ever seen, was told by Bullfrog that, I had to be here for Arco. We've been friends for so long. 
Stand up guy. So that's the end of this chapter, which uh, sent me down a real rabbit hole that I'm trying to emerge from. So I hope it was worth the effort. I hope uh, that was as interesting to you listening as it was to me putting it together. Uh, as always, uh, I want to do shout outs to some of my sources. This week, I'm not going to use a book. I'm going to use those two men that I've mentioned, Ian Heads and Gary Lester, who were kind enough to offer some of their insights and some of their, their first-hand knowledge of Peter Moore, uh, which I can't thank them enough for. Uh, so we'll be back next week. Once again, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what we've talked about in this episode. So, Well, before we go, what are your thoughts on Bullfrog after this? Basically, obviously, I know a lot more now than I did when I started, but kind of where I was at before in, in that it's not really about right or wrong or good or bad. It's just about the character and the place he holds in the game is because of that, because of the character he was. You can't blame a guy for you know, being his true self. And if you're a lovable rogue, you're a lovable rogue. Yeah. I think the game's a lot better off for having Bullfrog. Absolutely. And so, yeah, that, that's where I say for me, it's not about right or wrong. It's about the, the richness of this story and, you know, people who have been burnt by him many times might not share that sentiment, but I think he's one of the one of the truly compelling figures in Australian rugby league history. What I take out of it after learning all this about him is, like, I love a guy with a zest for life. Mm. And that seems evident. Yeah, yeah. But great chapter, man. Without a doubt. So, uh, yeah, so as I said, love to hear your thoughts. Uh, hit us up on email, thegrugbyleaguedigest at gmail.com. Uh, Office dimensions, first-hand accounts, more than welcome. Yes, please. Uh, any insight you can give us, uh, very welcome. Uh, yeah, Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you access your podcasts from. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 